Welcome to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Join me, Tony Tran. And me, Bill Robertazzi. Along with our amazing guests, as we explore how people's inner artist and inner engineer present themselves in their technical careers, in the art they create, and most importantly, in living creative lives. Our guest today is Maria Huang. Maria is Assistant Professor of Computer Science at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. Maria received her Doctorate of Education from Columbia University in Instructional Technology and Media. Her research focuses on delivering fashion, health, and wellness content through persuasive, personalized, and playful human-centered interfaces. We discuss how she adapted standard computer science subject matter into an arts and computing course to better suit the needs of her fashion students, how AI designers and wearable tech can be used in fashion design, and we ponder the future of digital fashion and virtual fashion shows. And finally, Maria tells us how bringing the fashion and technology fields together can play a part in reducing the barriers for women starting careers in computer science. Well, we are very happy to have Maria Huang with us today on the show. Welcome to the show, Maria. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. Welcome. Same here. Maria, you are a professor of computer science at Fashion Institute of Technology, which is kind of an interesting combination for us, and I imagine for you. And we're going to get into that a little bit. You're the first computer science professor there. Uh, so congratulations, but that's got to be exciting. We're figuring out how to introduce that topic and more technical topics into that space. But before we get into that, you did your, your doctorate work in education and instructional technology and media specifically, and you did your thesis on gaming technologies to improve health outcomes. And you created a game called Monster Appetite, which sounds kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of interested if you tell us a little bit about that and, and how that worked out. Did it prove your theory? <laughs> thanks for those <laughs> questions and thanks for having me. Yeah, I was going to school for education. And while I was doing that, I was teaching in different schools in New York City areas. And uh, while I was teaching math, the students just, you know, were not that interested in math, <laughs> um, as you might imagine. But they were always very interested in playing games. And that's when I kind of started to explore the area of uh, gaming and education. It actually has been a a field for a while. And the idea is to bring in content and embed that into games so that while students are playing, uh, learning happens naturally. So I became more and more interested where I went to school at Columbia University. They do have courses in educational gaming, and now they actually have a master's. After I graduated, they finally established that one. And so I got into it and through one of the courses, an educational gaming course, uh, as a final product, we created this game called Monster Appetite. And that was when it was just like a board game. And I took that to the next level, made it into a digital game to test it out in my dissertation. I think it's a little bit on the unique side. I call it has a subversive approach because instead of what you would kind of maybe normally think of what you would do, uh, the goal of the game is to feed your monster avatar as much calories as possible within a week and try to make it really sluggish and big and just not very good 
all the bad stuff you're supposed to do it. And if you do, uh, you win the game. Uh, so it's definitely something unconventional, if you will. And I think the idea behind it was we wanted to kind of make it fun. A lot of the games that we researched were all about keeping a healthy diet. And we probably know from our own experiences that's already stressful enough in the real world. And what we call affordances, kind of like these benefits and advantages of games is that you can experiment in games without having real life consequences. So you obviously don't want to experiment something like this on, a, on your own body or anybody. But in the game, you can keep doing that and experiment, see the consequences, but not really affect your real life. So we wanted to see how that would work. And so the idea is that you would see this avatar kind of really get slow and sad and you know we had these animations where it had a lot of pimples and it would just be, become really sad if you kept feeding all the feeding all these junk food which was the whole goal of the game and hopefully through that experience you would kind of realize that oh probably I shouldn't be doing that to myself so that was the goal um, another thing that I think affected that was kind of like my cultural background uh, I think um, some Koreans maybe could agree but we have um uh, and it was based on actually this psychological uh, theory called framing messages. So basically, if you keep emphasizing a negative consequence of a behavior, then it could drive your behavior to do or not do something. Um, the most common thing that we are familiar with in this uh, culture is uh, smoking uh, uh, cessation campaigns. Like if you keep smoking, your you know voice will become hoarse and you'll get a hole in your neck. And you know those commercials that we had for a while. It actually was very, very effective. So that's a very typical case of a negative framing approach where it's like, if you keep doing this, you'll die, basically. Um, in most nutrition and physical activity, positive framing is used, as you might uh, be, be aware. If you keep working out every day, you know, you won't develop a heart disease or you'll become healthy and all that kind of stuff. So to use this in a nutrition area was a little bit weird, if you will. It was new at the time. Um, but I think uh, negative framing is so um, culturally, to me, that's the most uh, a familiar thing I grew up with, with my parents being like that. And I'm like, I think it can work. So basically, long story short, I tested it out against the positive framing. And it did work as well as the positive framing. It didn't work better, but it did work um, as as much as it um, um, effect effectively did with a positive framing. So it does show you that there's a potential in different framing. And I, I'm sure a lot of variables are involved, such as like myself, I think it's a cultural component. Some people might just react better to that. Some people really might get stressed out about that negative, like, yo, this, this will happen if you don't do this. You know, people will get stressed out, so that won't work. But some people, that motivates them more. So I'm sure it's a, a variety of things, but um, my study or my dissertation showed that both uh, framing could work effectively. Very cool. <laughs> Tony and I are always very fascinated by you know, the underlying motivation of what motivates people and and makes people do or not do something so uh so that's fascinating you know a lot of studies are being done and people are still trying to crack that code if you will <laughs> yeah i like the subversive aspect to it in, in many ways and i think probably you, uh it's going to tie to education how you can teach people without feeling manipulated or forced or being lectured to because you're caring about the health of your avatar you know, it reminds me of that experiment where they force people to give electric shocks to other people. Mm -hmm. At what point do you feel so bad that you're going to stop feeding your avatar all this junk food? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So like how much do you have that kind of bond with your avatar? 
there was those uh, Tamagotchi things a while ago, <laughs> depending on your generation, you might or may not know this, but, um, you know, people got really attached and there's these theories about having uh, this bond with a pet, a uh, virtual pet, and you get so involved that it, it does affect your behavior as well. So I kind of was going in that direction. Very cool. Well, uh, I, why don't we take that when what Tony was just saying into the, the space that you are now inhibiting at the Fashion Institute of Technology, because uh, when I think of the Fashion Institute of Technology, I think of a lot of creative-oriented people, people who uh, maybe aren't as interested in math and, and computer science and those kind of things. So even trying to teach that seems a little subversive. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, I so, love that. So, 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 so how has that been? Tell us a little bit about that experience and, and what you've kind of run up against and, and how you've approached it. I, I love that um, you said that. I kind of feel like that's, that should be my new thing when I you know, talk to people. But um, <laughs> one of the most common questions I actually get is when I introduce myself, they're like, why? Why? What? Uh, what why a computer science professor at FIT? <laughs> to which I say, why not? Um, but it is kind of a little bit of a just maybe almost unsettling and shocking to people. They just can't kind of put it together. And to be fair, I was uh, kind of in the same boat when the uh, job was posted. A friend of mine told me about it. And I said, I don't know anything about fashion. So why would I apply there? And they're like, they're not looking for a fashion professor. They're looking for a computer science professor, Maria. So you can apply. Um, so I did. And it all worked out well. And it is a little bit um, interesting because at FIT, we have like the fashion design and fashion business school are kind of like what we call our two big pillars. And where I'm at in the School of Liberal Arts and Sciences, we don't really have any majors. Um, I think there's one, but basically in the science and math department I'm in, there's no science majors, there's no math majors, let alone a computer science department major or minor. So I'm working on creating a computer science minor. One of the ideas behind that is um, some several years ago, we created a math minor. And especially for like the fashion business students, it looked really good for them if they're a fashion business with a minor with math. Um, they're also thinking that could really look good in the 21st century, you know, given everything that you're a fashion business major, a fashion design major with a minor in computer science. Um, so we're going in that direction. Uh, another joke we kind of uh, say sometimes that, well, you know, the whole name of the institution, like one third is technology. And isn't that kind of like, what we should be going for. That's mm -hmm, like, you know, mm -hmm. aren't you one third of FIT? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll take that. <laughs> if you give that title to me. So we're really definitely moving in the direction of integrating technology more. And obviously technology is kind of a loaded term. Like you don't have to, you know, involve a computer or necessarily computer science principle to involve technology, right? The Jacquard Loom, like, you know, we have a textile development uh, a program. And so they've been using the Jacquard Loom, which is kind of like a lot of people say the beginning of a, a computer. So, you know, technology is all over FIT, but computer science, maybe not. So I am new in that field. What I do is that um, I'm part of the math cohort, if you will. So whatever math courses they have to take, um, I uh, kind of permutate that a little bit and throw in some computer science principles. We do some coding. One of the courses I teach is basically a stats course. Um, so I uh, bring in some AI and machine learning to it. And what I try to do is, and I had to study myself, how AI and um, fashion, uh, uh, machine learning is affecting the fashion world. And it really has been uh, affecting it in many different ways. There are 
what we call it, AI designers, AI fashion designers, sorry. Um, there are some companies that only rely on AI technology to develop some uh, type of clothing and they're selling that and that's been working for years. This is not anything new. So there are different aspects of uh, fashion that is being affected by broadly speaking computer science, if you will, or at least yes. the principles. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like what I throw at them in the beginning as a pitch to like, please stay in my course, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I know you don't like math and probably not computer science, but this is why it's relevant to you. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of students, you know, have heard of the term like AI, but they're not necessarily very familiar with the concept of computer science or what that whole field is about. So it mm -hmm. is a little bit challenging to get them on board and to care about this. Um, but once they kind of figure out this could be affecting their jobs in the future, I think they um, are interested. Not everybody, obviously, and I'm still working on that, but I think it uh, it does get to them, I think, a little bit. I, I, get, I get to approach them a little bit on a you know, more attractive way, if you will. I like what you said about technology isn't just computers or computer science, because I think that's kind of goes back even to the name of the show, Artist Engineer. Mm -hmm. When we talk to people, people have a mind that kind of crosses both of those. And we think of creative thinking and more structured, hard science kind of thinking and how they combine and, and people have affinities for one or the other. So as you say, it may be that they don't think they're interested in artificial intelligence, computer science, but they came into this out of some other creative interest and they get exposed to it and, and really flourish in it. So uh, terrific, terrific. A lot of the um, things that I witness at, at FIT when I pass a classroom and they're like, there's a knitting lab and they're knit, using these knitting machines, probably a technical term. I mean, they're all, this is all technology embedded in their uh, learning. So it's mm. everywhere really. But um, I think when people, you know, think of technology these days, you know, it's smartphones, social media, like mm -hmm. maybe definitely programming, which is one of the problems I do have about kind of pushing CS as in like everybody needs to code. I'm like, well, that's not really what computer science is about. And so there's a lot of nuanced things, but um, it is everywhere. So yeah. They just kind of have to look. When uh, when we first got introduced to you, uh, I mentioned that, oh, it looks like you're teaching pretty standard computer science courses. And you definitely said it's not core computer science. Can you talk about in your courses, what are the kind of projects that your students are doing or you're asking them to do? Is it really, is it tied to fashion in some way? And like, what, what do you mean by it's definitely not core computer science? So one of the courses I taught last fall, so we, I guess just ended it, was Arts and Computing in New York City. It happened to be a fascinating course because it was an experimental independent study course where we collaborated with Barnard College at Columbia. So students were actually taking courses at FIT and then at Barnard and going between campuses. And there were Barnard students as well as FIT students. And so um, in that particular course, what uh, their final project was to create something artistic from scratch that had to be displayed in a gallery show, but they did have to involve some type of computation that we covered in course uh, to be involved in the, our, their artistic piece. So one of the pieces, if I can elaborate, they use this thing called conductive thread. So if you like touch thread, you can make it do something. So basically they had the conductive thread con connected to a microcontroller. I believe they used the Raspberry Pi. So basically like a mini computer. And then they did some coding there. And what they did was the touch would produce these kind of beautiful colored like dots going sideways on a screen, kind of like being sprinkled like water, if you will. 
And then the conductive thread was on this piece that the FIT student like um, used an embroidery machine to embroider that had all these different like, like snapshots of their memories of their life. Mm -hmm. um, so you would touch this conductive thread and this like little corner, which was like maybe a park. And then another area in this corner would was like a walk they did or maybe a pet they had. And then there was a screen behind it, which would trigger these kind of these sprinkled water kind of things. And they it were supposed to uh, represent neurons firing to trigger your memory, uh, if you will. And then they had floppy disks like scat, uh, touching the embroidery thing all over because it's like an old memory, a symbolic memory thing. <laughs> I'm probably not doing justice for their piece, um, but that's what it looked like. And it was all about kind of going back to your memory, um, thinking about different memories and what that represents for you and how does that make you feel? So there was, you know, microcontrollers and coding and embroidery and display and all of that involved. And that was their final project. I'm not taking credit for it because we provided the lectures and the skills and what they could do. Like we provided the uh, Raspberry Pi and how to do coding in it, all that kind of stuff, but they created mm. that project. And it only, I think, was possible because we had an FIT student and a Barnard student working together, right? A Barnard computer science pro, uh, uh, student and an FIT textile mm. development student coming together. And that's kind of where I want to be going. This was like a very a limited and one-time successful case study, if you will, in the fall. But that's kind of what I want to get to where... I can have different people for, uh, in, from different backgrounds with different expertise coming together and creating something beautiful and artistic like that. I think that's great that the project started with the end in mind, you know, create something artistic that's going to be shown in the gallery yeah. and then kind of work backwards to say, then what do I need to learn? Some, something related to com computer science to deliver it. It's actually re the reverse. I think of a lot of computer science and technical people I know, they learn the skills but then they come in the world and like, you know, they don't think they're not thinking about thinking about how to apply the skills kind of to meet a business goal. And also like I work in, in basketball and just what you mentioned about uh, conductive thread it, at my, uh, at my work, uh, we got pitched a product like this as well. Uh, uniforms, uh, knee braces and things like that with conductive thread in there that would measure mm -hmm. sports injuries and even like uh, kind of the, the power generated by players. If anybody's doing this kind of work uh, with you at FIT, uh, you're ahead of the curve. This is, this is the, at the bleeding edge of stuff. It's, it's going to be very, uh, very interesting stuff to learn. I guarantee it. Nice. I love that. Yeah. Wearable technology is kind of like a big thing right now. So a lot of work is being done. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the, the bringing those two groups together uh, as well as uh, you had mentioned on the other call that between FIT and Barnard, it's probably 70% female population mm -hmm. in, in the class. So you're actually uh, kind of building confidence in from both sides in these technology skills, um, which, which makes for a more diverse field, which is great. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, if you are in computer science or know somebody in it, you will probably be familiar that we are um, struggling a lot to get more females into the field. Um, and talk a lot about why that happened because uh, a long time ago, there actually, it was more female dominant and then somehow it just changed. Um, so we are trying to bring more female into uh, the field. It worked out really well because Barnard is hundred percent female college and we are, I think something around 70 to 80% female. So that wasn't um, 
an issue at all to recruit females, right? <laughs> our, our issues were more administrative things, bringing two campuses together, especially during a pandemic and getting access for both students um, and professors. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was kind of really nice because that was one thing we didn't have to, another thing we had to worry about. Tony mentioned wearables and is that another direction I mean, it, this kind of came up in this course. Did you expect something like that, that the, uh, you know, conductive thread, and is that something that with the minor can get expanded at FIT? I didn't necessarily like expect them to use conductive thread, for example, but wearable technology is kind of like a, a growing field. And it's almost like what I would call kind of like an easy way to think about how fashion and technology can be combined kind of seamlessly. Uh, and it's it's been worked on a lot. So it wasn't something that it was something that, yeah, I can totally see a lot of students doing this. We had mm-hmm. one um, session where we had a dance performance um, from a graduate student who was wearing pressure sensors around her rib cage while she was dancing. And that pressure sensors were communicating to this wall mounted, beautiful display of uh, what looked like mirrors that are in wing shaped. And so it would kind of like flap like wings would as she would move around. And that was all kind of that uh, same idea of some kind of uh, a wearable tech uh, communicating in an artistic way. Um, So those kind of things have happened and we've uh, presented that to them and uh, taught them the skills and technology behind it. So I did expect Mm -hmm. maybe one or two groups to pick up uh, a wearable tech kind of project and Mm -hmm. uh, which which we did see, yeah. So you mentioned that's kind of been working on or been worked on. So it's kind of the easier entry for using technology in this. So is the harder one, you know, where AI goes out and does all the fashion design for you and comes up with the net and you don't need fashion designers or people to actually do the work anymore. You just, you feed it a bunch of a data set that says, this is what people like and have liked over the course of history. And the U.S. AI, what's the next big fashion breakthrough? And it comes back with a design. So those are excellent questions. Um, So I think the AI fashion designer, and and I don't know too much about this right now, they work on really simplistic things. As far as my research is, like what I could find, um, like basic shirts, basic pants and stuff like that, which is, you know, a big uh, part of uh, what consumers need. I'm not sure about the more creative and innovative uh, styles, what the AI designers can do. So that will be an interesting thing. And that, and it's a, something to talk about. Like, do we even want AI designers for something like that? Maybe that is the uh, core part that is really more human and it should stay on the human side. And the basic, more mundane, uh, repetitive things should be uh, done by AI. That's kind of like what I do say in my classes too. Like, don't think of AI taking over your jobs, but you know you utilize them to do the mundane tasks that you're better than. <laughs> you're <laughs> better than that. So, but you can focus on the creative side. You're get, um, allowing yourself to have more time to focus on what we're really good at, but being human. That's where we get the next fashion trend: recommending yeah. something you don't know that you want yet. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I know what you want, but you don't know it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what uh, that's what we're what our designers are doing next yeah. year's mm-hmm. style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This um this use of AI is interesting to me. I think we often have this conversation, especially on this uh, podcast, about what's the difference between art and craft. You know, doing something very well, or, or do something craft, or doing something creative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know the story um, around AI a little bit is uh, an example for chess, chess AI. 
a chess computer generally will beat a human grandmaster most of the time. But a chess computer working with a human grandmaster can beat every chess computer. So this is the combination of what you said. Do we have fully AI, artificial, artificial intelligence, fashion design, or do we find the right usage of it and then work with the creativity and the artistic sensibility of a human being, which would uh, definitely outsell any AI-generated fashion, I believe. Mm-hmm. It is um, like kind of like thinking about different things as you guys are asking me questions. I don't, this is like kind of might, might sound like it's not related, but when it comes to, Bill, you were saying like, what's the next big thing? And I think um, we might have not seen it yet, I guess, or maybe it's kind of like around us that we haven't really uh, noticed. I remember um, I was, uh, uh, I, I, I taught in K-12 for a while and I was um, kind of reading a book with uh, a really uh, young uh, a child. I, I I say child because I can't remember what her grade was, <laughs> but it was just a normal traditional book. And the student um, uh, touched the book and tried to zoom in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I love this story. And I told it, I think at my FIT interview as well, because it's just like, th- that's what the student expected, right? Why wouldn't yes. I zoom in just like my smartphone and let me like have bigger fonts? Um, and, and I say this because I think something like that is some will come equivalent in the fashion AI art world. It's something that maybe right now we don't accept as something normal, but something that will just become so like embedded in our culture and our everyday lives that it will like change how we think. And that's, I think would be quote unquote the innovation, but it won't sound like innovation because it, it just, it's ingrained in our lives now. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. There's a certain generation that's kind of born into it and is is expecting these things where we're, you know, depending on your generation, probably the oldest person here on the call. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, some of the things seem a little like, oh, that's weird. Like, like, for instance, you know, could could, you know, the next the, the fashion way become just totally. Um, basically the metaverse, you know, and basically you never leave your, your gray drab outfit. You just sit with your, you know, mm-hmm. uh, your, your, your headset on and, you know, and you choose your outfit for the day and the designers are working in fashion to dress you in your avatar world and you're that's purchasing right. clothing there. <laughs> Let's hope not. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what you dress up for, for your avatar world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there um, is, um, there is a, and I want to get into this because I'm, I'm in uh, my research is in gaming. There's a huge market as in like, it's already happened skins uh game character skins it's like yes. absolutely insanely um huge and like of uh, gamers pay exorbitant amount of money to just dress their characters right um, yeah so this is something i do I, so i know there's a there's a market for it and it's popular and there's a lot of collaborations happening between like fashion companies and gaming companies mm-hmm. just um i i'm like don't know if there's I haven't found a research question to explore yet in that field. Like I know there's advertising and marketing and money involved and all of that, but I haven't really found a good research question to explore. Is there any um, just purely digital fashion design going on at this point in in FIT? So there's lots of tools that uh, traditionally have been used in the fashion design world. Um, 
all kinds of tools. Clothe 3D, I think, is what I hear a lot about. And actually, uh, during the pandemic, um, a very young artist um, uh, used Clothe 3D to do a runway fashion show. Uh, and it, I think one of the taglines was like a kind of like ghost figures because what the artist did was not put any figures um, in this animated GIF, if you will, that they created, but it was just the clothing and it had a walking um, animation. So it was walking down a runway, kind of like a, a, a street, but it was, and it had the shape of a person, but it just did not have the person inside and it was the uh, clo uh, clothes like um, going back and forth. And so that was launched and it's, it's a pretty famous case and it was um, getting a lot of buzz because it's like, well, everybody could be at the front row because it's a virtual fashion show and it's runway and everybody can participate. And it was, um, it had all types of body shapes as well. And it wasn't just like one type of model that we usually see. So getting a lot of buzz for it. So if that is, if you can call it digital fashion, I feel like that's a very classic case of everything was digital in that particular fashion. Um, so there's things like that going on. Um, there's not like uh, necessarily, I, I believe uh, there's a lot of majors at FIT that I'm still learning. I don't think there's a digital fashion major, but there is um, the illustration department and a lot of um, creative technologies and all these um, majors that are really exploring a lot of the digital tools that allow them to do different things in the fashion world. So kind of getting there, if you will, if, um, if there is purely something called quote unquote digital fashion, we are like experimenting with different ideas for that, I think. It's great, especially about uh, what you said about every, everybody can be in the front row, in the front row, because I think high fashion, the way I think about it is a very closed world of like people who are connected to each other. And then with all things digital, you know, it's taking out the middleman, opening it up access to people. So we'll see what the future holds. I hope it's some of your students. I was surprised by how much possibility there is here. <laughs> I didn't know where computer science and fashion would go, but we touched on a, quite a few things that, uh, as you said, Bill and Emria, might be uh, in some young person's mind, uh, and it would be so simple for them. And we're saying, oh, it's, it's, it would be some crazy thing coming up next. So a lot of possibility I'm hearing about. That's good. That's good. Um, I mean, I don't know if we have really figured out just yet how they uh the two fields can combine seamlessly I'm, I'm trying and i'm i'm trying to get there i do um want to say that uh especially for females this has been like a thing for a while but it's a lot of people are very afraid of uh, computer science uh, especially females and this is true in math as well because i've been teaching math for a while they're like oh well i'm not a math person or i'm not smart enough and i'm like oh my god i don't know where this started but there's no such thing as a math person um, um, but a lot of my students actually do believe they're just, they don't have that math gene or something. Um, mm. said, this is not a concept ever that existed ever, <laughs> but I think that's why this is important to bring these two fields together because, um, it, it reduces the barriers. And I think it, um, kind of eliminates that fear that they can't do something like this. Uh, well, uh, my colleagues in computer science and I kind of joke about how it's the biggest somehow hidden and protected uh, secret of computer science that actually computer science is not like actually smart. It's actually one of the easiest things to do. It's really just like we are lazy and we want things to be automated. So we program it. 
And it's actually quite simple as long as, you know, you understand the logic behind it. And the problem is why people think it's hard is because we are not, we, we don't train, we don't, in our public K-12 system, we don't teach logic, which I, I think mm. I, I'm a high, high proponent of. Um, instead of doing like, pro, everybody should program or mm -hmm. one hour programming every uh, a day, I think it should be more logic courses that could come in. And I think what uh, a lot of the courses that might be challenging for students in general, like the math, philosophy, and computer science and all of these, these might be challenging because it's trying to bring in that logic aspect, which we're not normally used to using on a daily basis, which is why it seems challenging and hard, but it's just that we haven't been exposed to it as much. And so I'm hoping that computer science and math and these fields in the future kind of become this just default embedded thing that we're very used to so that it doesn't have to be a barrier and stop females or anybody from starting a career in computer science. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, uh, I love that dream. And you, you, I think you're, you're already well on your way to trying to start it up. That, that arts and computing course sounded amazing. So I hope that becomes a big success at combining those two groups. Yes, and I hope one it continues. <laughs> yes, and thank you for a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Bill and Tony. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can email us at podcast at theartistengineer.com if you have show ideas or want to follow up with feedback or just want to say hi. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes at www.theartistengineer.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes review as it helps the show get discovered by more people. And also hit the subscribe button.